This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, episode 1.27, Patrimony. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and also an antiquated device found in a junkyard. (laughs) And I'm Nina, anime fan and some kind of monster. (laughs) Yeah, you are. A big thank you to this week's new patrons, Nathan V, Triple T778, and Peter F. Your support makes Mobile Suit Breakdown possible. This week, I would also like to thank some of our fans on Instagram and Twitter who recommended us to all of their followers. So thank yous go out to at Twitch Vlad Vos and at Action Awesome. And I'd like to thank longtime listener of the podcast, Agatha, who helped us out by suggesting some ways to promote the podcast and better optimize our website. I'd also like to extend our thanks to the good people at Pinecast who helped me fix the website after I briefly broke it, because I am truly (laughs) the Hayato of web development. Final call for Mandeep S. If we do not hear from you by midnight Eastern time today, your prize will go to someone else. We still have a colander full of names and we'll just have to draw another one. So Mandeep, please get in touch with us. Last week, after picking up a new crew member, the boorish Lieutenant Slager Law, the white base launched back into space to begin their new mission as a decoy ship sent to draw Xeon attention away from the Federation campaign against Dozel Zabi's space fortress Solomon. In low orbit, they skirmished with a Zanzibar commanded by Shar Aznable, then destroyed a squadron of Musai cruisers. Badly damaged and still pursued, the white base headed toward the temporary refuge offered by the neutral colonies of Side 6. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam episode 33, Farewell Inside 6, also known as Konsukon Kyoshu, Konsukon's Assault. For research, we do a deep dive with a special guest and talk pretty exclusively about Amaro's neuropsychological issues. <laughs> That's right. This week is going to be a little bit different. Regular listeners of the podcast know that usually, after recapping the episode and discussing our first impressions, Nina and I present a series of research pieces about aspects of the show that we found interesting, troubling, or just strange. This week, instead, we are going to be joined by a special guest with expertise that is desperately needed in the Gundam universe. Mobile Suit Breakdown's clinical psychology consultant, Shar, the clinical neuropsychologist, will be discussing Amro, his parents, coping mechanisms, intergenerational wounding, and the worst thing that could happen to him. But first, the recap. Xeon's Space Fortress Solomon, commanded by Dozel Zabi, lurks in the ruins of Side 1. Offended by Kaecilia's use of his former subordinate, Char, Dozel dispatches the powerful Konskan attack force to prove Char's incompetence by destroying the White Base. The White Base nears neutral Side 6, as Amaro and Sela patrol nearby. Alone together, Sela asks Amaro about his feelings for Fra, 
He stutters that he doesn't hate Fra, but just as the conversation is becoming uncomfortable for him, Amuro spots Xeon forces. They skirmish with the new Xeon mobile armor, Brabro, but it disengages and they return to base. Once inside Side 6, all their weapons are sealed with red tape. District Attorney Cameron Bloom comes aboard to examine the ship and warns Bright that any broken tape will result in severe fines. There will also be no repairs for the white base inside Six. That would be considered aiding the war effort. As they enter the dock, Cameron and Mirai suddenly recognize each other. Cameron is Mirai's fiance. They are thrilled to see each other alive and well in spite of the war, but Bright reminds Mirai that she has a job to do and asks them to restrain themselves. Although upset by seeing them together, Cameron's hand resting on Mirai's arm, Bright says nothing more. Later, catching up, Cameron wonders why Mirai never tried to contact him. Even though he was so desperate, he spent a small fortune hiring people to look for her. Mirai seems dismayed. Why didn't he look himself? She asks if their engagement was only to please their parents, and though Cameron objects, Mirai believes that it was. With his hands on her waist, he asks her to come home with him, insisting that she'll be treated like a queen. She pulls away, asking him to wait, to slow down. Before Cameron can say anything else, Slugger interjects himself and punches Cameron in the face. The punch doesn't pack much force, but it gets the point across. Cameron acknowledges that he was out of line, and Slegger points out that the crew are all fond of Mirai. She is like a mother to the white base. While out shopping for supplies with some of the crew, Amaro spots his father, alive, at a bookstore across the street. Trying to catch up, heedless of the traffic and unable to get his father's attention, he is soon running along behind a bus with his father on board. Every time he gets close, the bus pulls away again. When he finally catches up, his father seems unsurprised to see him, and asks how the Gundam is doing. He invites Amuro back to his apartment, a shabby room overlooking a junkyard, and displays his latest invention. Tem is very proud of it, insisting that Amuro needs to install it in the Gundam right away, but Amuro thinks to himself that the gadget is junk, and that his father is suffering from brain damage caused by oxygen deprivation. Amuro tries to talk to Tem about seeing his mother on Earth, but Tem has already returned to work. Oblivious to Amuro's feelings, he suggests they go visit Earth when the war is over. When Amuro tries to talk more, Tem barks, Get going! You're a military man now! Amuro runs out, barely holding back tears. On the White Base, they are preparing to leave Side 6 for a dock just outside the territory, where the White Base can receive the repairs it so desperately needs. Bergamino, the war profiteer who owns the dock, insists that they will be safe due to his close ties with the top brass of both Xeon and the Federation. The Conscon fleet and 12 of its rigdoms spring their trap, firing on the white base from behind the floating dock. Though the white base is forced to retreat, their pilots destroy all 12 rigdoms. Amuro alone, counting each one as he goes, kills nine. All while Conscon trembles, just now beginning to understand the kind of monster that he faces. Sharzanzibar approaches to support Conscon, but as the white base retreats towards Side 6 and a local patrol ship passes nearby, Xeon is forced to halt their attack out of fear they might cause an international incident. Cameron tells Mirai that his father fixed everything so that she can stay safe with him. She asks, if she is supposed to give up the white base, what is he willing to do for her? When he says that he'll ask his father to help her, tears fill her eyes. You still don't understand, she says, and tells him she cannot abandon the white base. On his knees beside her, Cameron proclaims that he loves her, and always will. Mirai thanks him, saying that it means a lot to her, before floating away in the low gravity of the port. Cameron begs to know what she doesn't like about him, and says that he'll change, but Mirai does not respond.
We're going to be doing something a little bit different this week. We have a special guest who's going to be joining us for the latter half of our first impressions piece. Tom and I will address a lot of the points <laughs> that <laughs> happened in this episode, but we are going to save the discussion of Amuro and his reunion with Temre. And then for the latter half, we'll be joined by clinical neuropsychologist Shar. <laughs> S-H-A-R, not C-H-A-R. <laughs> Obviously, Amaro's reunion with his father is the most dramatic part of the episode, but I love every interaction between Mirai and Cameron. <laughs> that and, whole thing. And Bright observing the whole thing. Bright clearly is disgruntled <laughs> and showing admirable restraint for not hauling off and just sliggering Cameron. When Mirai first talks to Bright about the fact that she has a fiance, she makes it sound as if she doesn't even like this guy. Like, oh, it's just something my parents set up and, uh, you know. A reasonable person, a reasonable Bright hearing that would be justified in assuming that Mirai had actually never met this fiance. Well, or if she had met him, didn't have any particular affection for him. Sure. When clearly they, their reunion shows us that is false. Yeah. They are both so happy to see each other and so happy that the other one has somehow survived the war so far. These are old childhood friends becoming reacquainted. Uh, and Mirai, who we have seen forcefully remove unwelcome hands before, uh, lets Cameron leave his hand on her arm. It lingers an uncomfortably long time, for the audience at least. And Bright is standing nearby. Uh, the most he does is bark at them slightly that they are bringing the white base into port <laughs> and maybe Mirai should pay attention to her job. Yeah. Uh, but otherwise, he's just giving them side eye as they look happily at each other. <laughs> and Cameron touches Mirai. It's not until their first conversation where they're catching up, Mirai and Cameron, that we get some clue as to what is going to be the essential conflict of this relationship. Mm-hmm. Which is that Cameron is a coward. not And not just a coward. Cameron is so um, effete and so disconnected from his own feelings and from the world that he doesn't do anything. He talks about being desperate to find Mirai. And then he talks about how much money he spent and how many other people he sent looking for her. Right. I was going to say he's someone who's very used to solving all of his problems with either money or his father's influence. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas Mirai's life is obviously very different now. Yeah. She she, in, in a way, more than almost anybody else, adopted life on the white base wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is a woman who, from everything we've learned about her in the last few episodes, she comes from a very wealthy, very powerful family. And she could have gone to side six after her father died in order to stay safe from the war. But instead, she went to side seven, a not entirely complete, almost unpopulated, like frontier colony. Mm -hmm. She hasn't chosen the easy way, even when it was available to her. Right. As Cameron points out, she could have called in favors. She could have contacted Cameron or Cameron's family at any time. Yeah. Yeah. When he says, oh, I was desperate to find you, she really catches on to desperate. Mm -hmm. She really wants him to be a different kind of person, mm -hmm. especially because of their, you know, their long friendship, their long association of their families. She really wants him to have done something unexpected. But she's not surprised at all when it turns out that all he did was Spend hire a lot people of to look for her. <laughs> he both fails to recognize or acknowledge in any way that he's asking her to give up something significant and important. Yeah. He thinks he's doing her a huge favor right. by giving her a way to escape the white base. And he completely fails to pick up on her disappointment 
in his reliance on money to solve all of his problems. Uh, and he begins to get very pushy in a way that made me uncomfortable watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's got his hands on Mirai's waist. He's saying, come home with me. My family will be so happy to see you. Like he's saving her from this life. Uh-huh. Uh, and she's like, you need to slow down. And this is when Slegger shows up. <laughs> Slegger floats by. Very politely removes Cameron's glasses before punching him in the face, <laughs> uh, which in low grav does not look like it does much damage, <laughs> but certainly startles everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Slegger, Slegger's a big dude. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and this gives you a really interesting contrast between Slegger and Cameron. Because Slager, like Slager, is also inappropriately forward. <laughs> yeah. Um. But Slager knows how to take no for an answer. It doesn't stop him from asking you again later. But he doesn't. He's not persistent the way Cameron is. It's difficult to explain if you haven't watched the scenes. Mm-hmm. So I hope most of you have. Slager annoys the women on the white base. He doesn't scare them. Hmm. And Mirai seems a little freaked out yeah. by Cameron yeah. in that scene. Like Mirai is a little afraid. Hmm. Slager is annoying. Slager is a nuisance, (laughs) but he's not frightening. I think Slager knows that he's transgressing. Absolutely. He does it to push people's buttons. Yeah. Cameron thinks he has a right to it. And interestingly, Cameron, after Slager has returned Cameron's glasses, (laughs) uh, sort of apologizes, but more to Slager than to Mirai. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like Cameron, you know, in in line with what I just said about Cameron thinking he has a right to it, Cameron doesn't realize what he's done wrong. Mm -hmm. He's he's been punched, so he realizes he did something wrong, but he doesn't he doesn't really understand Mm -hmm. at that point. Even at the end, he doesn't understand. His last scene in the episode is him shouting how can i like how can i change so that you'll love me what have i done wrong what is it about me you don't like yeah exactly i feel like slayer even almost tries to give cameron a a pointer here (laughs) when he explains that mirai is like the mom of the white base yeah that she's got this whole crew of people who are very fond of her who depend on her who need her It's not as if she's been all alone this whole time mm-hmm. waiting for Cameron to rescue her. <laughs> yeah. Aside from the floating away goodbye, which is the coolest kiss off I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> well, and the line there. Yeah. He says, I love you and that will never change. Right. And she says, basically, thank you. That means a lot to me. And then she floats away. (laughs) 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 And it's it's not a fast floating away. It's pretty slow. Mm -hmm. And he's yelling after her and she doesn't look back or say anything. But before that... She starts to say, you know, if only there hadn't been a war. And then she says, no, it's not that. You haven't changed. And they don't spend a lot of time on it or explain it very well. But the feeling that I got from that exchange was that having lived through so much of the war, really in it, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. She was there when Side 7 got attacked. She was there with the refugees. She's been to Earth. She's seen a lot of what's happened up close, personal. Mm -hmm. The idea that somebody could be living in these times and untouched by them is unacceptable to her. Yeah. And in that, Cameron is a microcosm 
for side six and all of the people living in that neutral colony. And I think we can't look at just Cameron as much as Cameron and Mirai is the really interesting relationship there. We can't look at just Cameron in this episode because this episode also gives us Bergamino, the war profiteer, Mm -hmm. and it gives us Conscon, the very sort of perfumed, dandyish Xeon officer. It also gives us the side itself. Yeah. uh, Which we've seen what the various communities you know, on Earth and on the sides look like now. And we've seen very few untouched by war. Mm -hmm. And so to see this beautiful, pristine environment and this glittering city, it's a shock. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Bergamino's total lack of concern that that he has such personal relationships with the lead brass on both sides mm-hmm. that he needn't worry about his dock being attacked. Right. Well, and then there's there's that that border that they have marked out by beacons and mm-hmm. patrol ships. And it's just this feeling like the war somehow can't pass this border. And when Cameron is in that one patrol ship, and the pilot says, oh, I didn't sign up to get shot at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How much of the population of Side 6 is people like Cameron? People who were rich enough that they could keep themselves out of it. And to sort of accept that with that isolation, with that immunity from the horrors of war comes essentially having no stake in the outcome of it. Mm -hmm. Because if the Federation wins, side six is going to be dominated by the Federation. And if Zeon wins, side six is going to be dominated by Zeon. They've washed their hands of the matter. Like they don't care which side wins. And so I am reminded of a saying I love, which is that the term for a Nazi sympathizer is a Nazi. (laughs) If you don't care whether or not the space fascists win, then maybe you're a space fascist. As you were talking about their position, I found myself thinking about and contrasting that with Garma's funeral, mm-hmm. right? How can a person, how can a government see that and decide that they don't care what happens? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was contrasting it because side three, Xeon, is another area where the war hasn't arrived. Mm-hmm. There haven't been battles in side three, not really. But side three is not untouched because of how many of their people have gone to Earth, gone out into battle and died or who are just far away from home. Um And so for side six to stand apart from all of that is truly remarkable. There were neutral areas on Earth, too. I remember in the uh, Duel in the Desert episode when Rambaral and Amaro meet in Sodun, the barkeep reminds them that Sodun is neutral territory, but Sodun is wrecked. Right. Sodun has already been destroyed. (laughs) Places on Earth that are neutral have also felt the war. And so side six is in this unique position And I think we see with Bergamino and with Conscon, these older, clearly wealthy, powerful, insulated men who are just so helpless, so static, which is what Mirai calls uh, Cameron toward the end of the episode, that they they can't do anything. All they can do is sit there trembling and giving orders to their subordinates. It's very interesting the prejudice we see from Dozel and from Kanskan as well, that they can look at someone like Shar, who everyone thinks of as a great warrior, and assume that, oh no, actually he's just a failure, he's useless, you know, he's failed half a dozen times to destroy this machine, therefore he's the failure, not this machine is really difficult to beat. <laughs> and Shar is happy for them to make that mistake. <laughs> 
Yeah, Shar keeps just letting them set themselves up for failure. I did think it was interesting. Dozel, and then Kanskan makes it very clear in this episode, but he says something like, you know, you served under Dozel and then you very quickly took a job serving Kaecilia. Don't you feel ashamed of that? Mm -hmm. And it's the sense that something like loyalty to the, the proper hierarchical structure is much more important than actually being an effective soldier, which is how Kanskan ended up in charge of this very strong mobile assault force, even though he is like clearly not a competent commander. That's interesting. Uh, which bits did you feel made that really clear? You see Kanskan, he's got this like new battleship, the one that's bright red. Mm-hmm. He's got, uh, I think he's got a couple of cruisers with him. He's mm-hmm. got a huge force of rickdoms. A dozen. Yeah, exactly. Brand new top of the line mobile suits. But then once you actually see him in battle, even when the battle is going fairly evenly for both sides. They're just sort of sniping back and forth. That proximity to danger has him falling apart. Somewhat panic. I'd say more than somewhat. He's totally out of control. Um, his his voice is trembling. He's shaking. He's like sitting down in his chair and he's gripping the armrests. armrests. And that's just when the white base is like shooting near his ship. It suggests that maybe he's never been in a battle before, or if he has been, he's never been in a battle where he was actually in charge or where he was near the front lines or where the the strength of force was even close to equal. And yet he's this high ranking guy with all these resources at his disposal. And Bergamino is so overconfident in his connections and his money to keep his business interests safe. He doesn't even have security. I cannot believe (laughs) that a war profiteer with a floating dock frequented by both sides would not have even minimal security. I do not believe it. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I think it comes of living in a neutral colony. This idea that the, the war is never going to touch him because he's got influence and connections. Gross. And like Kanskan, as soon as the shooting starts, he just, he's a puddle. He melts. Yeah. He's like, I think he's at one point he's clinging to Bright's arm. Well, because first he's saying, get away from my dock so the fighting doesn't destroy it. And then when they decide to retreat, he's like, but my dock, you need to save it. <laughs> yeah. Ugh. Gross. And I think the implication is that if Cameron continues on his current trajectory, he's going to end up just like one of them. Just a rich coward hanging out on side six. Cameron in this episode is really important, not just for giving us the Mirai relationship and not just for giving us another way of looking at side six and Bergamino and Conscon altogether, but also because Cameron's wealth and influence comes from his relationship with his father. This is an episode that at its core, and as we'll talk about it very soon, is about Amuro's relationship with his father. And we can see what Cameron gets out of that relationship and what Amuro gets out of that relationship and the different sorts of people that it's turning them into. And so that's something to think about as we get into talking about Amuro and Tamre with our special guest. But just remember, Cameron is almost entirely dependent on his father and on his relationship with his father. And then the third thing that I do want to touch on is it cannot be a coincidence that in the opening to this episode, Amuro and Sela are about to talk about Amuro's feelings about Frabo when they are attacked by the Xeon mobile armor Brabro. <laughs> not cannot, actually, not I actually cannot believe. Amuro spots it. He's avoiding the conversation. Sela, <laughs> look over there. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I can't believe that that's a coincidence. And yet the Brabro gets away. It's the first time that a mobile armor has survived the episode in which it was introduced. Something gets destroyed, though. Some part of it gets yeah, destroyed. Yeah, it like splits in half. So that like half of it gets destroyed and the other half gets away. So the lead scientist, I think, the the woman who's mm-hmm. there with them, who was insisting they shouldn't have attacked because she doesn't think that they would have been attacked in the first place, mm-hmm. uh, is lamenting that it was so close to operational. <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's some foreshadowing. I think we are going to get a more powerful Brabro in the future and more lady scientist. I liked her, even if she was a villain. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, you'll get plenty of lady villains in the future. Woo! This is going to be Mobile Suit Breakdown episode 1.27, which we are calling Patrimony for reasons that are about to become... (laughs) Very apparent. Whoa. (laughs) And we are joined today by a very special guest. Hello, everyone. I'm Charlene. Uh, What else would you like me to say? Why have we chosen to (laughs) invite you onto the program today? Uh, Because I'm in the area and I have. (laughs) (laughs) And I am currently studying to be a clinical neuropsychologist. I'm currently considered a clinical neuropsychologist and will be your consultant in clinical psychology for today. Awesome. We have a lot of questions about <laughs> particularly Amaro. This poor boy. <laughs> yeah, Amaro seems to be having some difficulties and I think he probably needs a clinical neuropsychologist. <laughs> he needs a whole team. <laughs> At the minimum, he needs some consulting. <laughs> So to prep you for this, Shar, Mm -hmm. we watched segments from a bunch of the preceding Gundam episodes. Um, Shar has not actually watched Gundam except for what she saw with us. Mm -hmm. So we watched the entire first episode. We watched the entire Coming Home to Mother episode. (laughs) Yes. And we watched the entire uh, Farewell Inside Six episode. And then we watched sort of the greatest hits of Amaro's psychoses over the last. Is that am I using that correctly? I'm probably not. No, but that's okay. You can say like emotional breakdowns. Yeah, we watched a sequence of Amaro's emotional breakdowns. Oh, I also forgot to talk about my YouTube channel, but that's okay. Do you want to talk about that now? I could. I know you have a pretty cool YouTube channel that you'd like to plug. <laughs> Yes, I have uh, Dr. Charmander Gaming for that. That's for me. And I actually do a lot of case conceptualizations about video game characters. One that came up really well was like the Dream Daddy episode I ended up doing. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) It was, these are a lot of emotionally healthy people in a place you wouldn't expect. So, yeah, that's really cool. That's not what we're here to talk about today. No, we're talking about the complete opposite. So. But I'm a big fan of Shara's YouTube channel, and I recommend it to all of our viewers. We will link in the show notes. If you like real analysis of the fake psychologies of imaginary people, it is the place to go. Yay. And speaking of the uh, fake psychologies of imaginary people, let's talk about Amaro. Let's. Let's. I had to make a handful of assumptions going into this uh, baseline wise. So I've already made assumptions that there's at least one generation that is adjusted to living in space because we know that would be incredibly emotionally, physically, psychologically taxing. Um, I also made a few assumptions about uh, his development. You gave me some snapshots from like four to 15. So I'm going to guess about the years in between. Um mm-hmm. 
And you've already told me about the culture between the adults and children on the ship, (laughs) (laughs) which was special. Yeah, the adults are basically either dead or useless. Essentially all dead. We skipped over this episode, but at one point, all of the the refugee adults do just leave the ship. What? And honestly, it makes almost no difference, except that it's kind of a relief for everybody involved. Oh, thank God. Less resources, more air. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, good for them. I'm glad they got out. Um, So other than that, I'm glad that they dedicated at least two episodes to his parents, which was interesting. I think Amuro might have some issues dealing with his parents and with parental figures. I mean, after the first episode where his dad briefly appears. um, Gets sucked into space. (laughs) Unintentionally bequeaths the Gundam unto Amuro and then gets sucked out into space. Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise to see him again here in Farewell Inside 6. Yeah, his hair looks a little different. <laughs> it's weird that an episode that's all about Amuro having a reunion with his dad would be called Farewell, isn't it? <laughs> it's almost like he does have to say his own goodbye to a version of his dad that he's been looking for. Um so when we went to see his mom, I already, in our discussions, I was talking about how that entire metaphor of um, soldiers invading a home space mm-hmm. meant something else. And uh, I suggested that it's a metaphor for um, the mom having an affair as like the home being like representative of her role and slowly being invaded by military culture. It was great to hear that I was right because it was in the books. She cried a lot. <laughs> yeah, she seemed very uh, emotional, very emotionally available, perhaps. No. <laughs> no wrong, wrong word. <laughs> he literally leaves her his childhood toy in a way of just saying, I'm leaving all my childhood here. She's taken up a role with the refugees. So I think that she's sublimating all of her guilt of abandoning her child mm. by taking care of these people that are also affected by a war. And I don't I just don't understand why it was just like. I don't want to live in space. And that was all we got. I know that there's probably more subtext, but it's literally just like, just go. I don't like space. It's cold. (laughs) Well, it's funny. Like I said, she was crying for so long and I was just like, one of my number one referrals from like emergency rooms and primary cares and doctors are like, patient crying in room. Someone talk to her. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Uh, The medical system. So good. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah, in the books, it's more clear that she's having an affair and that's a big factor. But the books were also written some years after the show. And so there may be a certain element of trying to explain away things that weren't adequately explained. And we can't really know whether that was intended when this scene was written. But since you, when you saw the group of loutish soldiers who had occupied the house, with no other context, you immediately said that it was a metaphor for like her having an affair. Yeah. So maybe that is there. <laughs> I also think one way of looking at that scene where they flash back to her decision to stay on Earth is just another example for us of the fact that his parents have never prioritized Amaro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. That her own feelings about where she wanted to live were more important to her than being with him, frankly. 
his father's desire to go work on Side 7 was more important than keeping the family together. Absolutely. We got a whole system of attachment issues here. It's definitely an intergenerational wounding, for sure. (laughs) And watching these episodes in such quick succession, the first episode, the mother episode, and now the father episode, I noticed a couple of things, one of which is Amaro's home on side seven is incredibly sparse. There's very little domestic anything there. The only room that really has anything in it is his room, and it's all gadgets that he's working on. His cupboards are empty. He barely has any clothes, um, and we don't see any other part of the house. But then we go into the mother's house, and it's full of stuff. Even though it's been abandoned, it's full of these domestic things. Uh, And we see the living room, and we see like a bedroom, and it all feels very um, family-oriented, we can say, even though there's no family there. And then he gets to his dad's little like apartment Mm -hmm. over a junkyard and his dad's apartment is almost identical to what Amaro's room was like Mm -hmm. at the beginning, except it's even more trashed. The parallels of seeing them one right after the other is the mom saying, oh, I wonder if this is just because you were raised by a man. Mm -hmm. But that was for something unrelated. But it's interesting that she said that. And then you cut to... Um, essentially the father showing the same coping skills that Amaro has from the beginning. (laughs) And you're like, oh, yeah, he was. He really was raised by a man. And that's all he took from it was just this. And I feel like more of that was uh, saying goodbye to his father and also some fear of what he could be. Yeah. To be really fair, he was raised by Frabo. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) We'll we'll give credit where credit's due. (laughs) I noticed when we were watching this, when Amuro was having his breakdowns and he was getting his sort of pep talks (laughs) from from Frabo, you described it as being a very sort of, I I can't remember exactly the terms you used, but it was like... No, so it's invalidation. Mm. Um, That was what I was like... And you could hardly call what she says to him sometimes pep talks. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I'm ashamed of you. (laughs) You call yourself a man? I know. And I was like, I'm not sure because I was like trying to be culturally sensitive to like the time, Japan, military culture. But I was like, oh, God, this is all where toxic masculinity came from. And it's so interesting that whenever she talks to him, it's always this this, in, this invalidating speak. And then whenever she talks about him without him there, it's always like, but he fought for you. Why aren't you going to look for him? He's so great. And I don't know. I wonder what her psyche's like to try and like have these two pictures of Amaro for herself I mean, and which one she's actually in love with <laughs> that is a fascinating yeah, question uh, well and for Frabo I mean we don't spend nearly as much time with her because she's not the main character but she is a main character and for her we have you saw the first major thing that happens with her is she watches her mom and her granddad die yeah um, it's, it's just interesting because like you know Amaro's like oh those men died over there and like Picks up a manual, essentially. Like, oh, no, no dead. <laughs> she acts as the vehicle for the emotion in that episode. And I feel like that's, you know, we're speaking to gender roles. But, like, I think that's also probably carried through in the series. I have a notebook full of notes that I could reference. But, like, that was more just, like, my case understanding of him. And then... 
Can you share a little bit of your understanding of him with us? My hugest problem, and this is a problem for me clinically, is just there's actually a threshold for diagnosing everything above the age of about 16, 17 is where I could do it. And you all telling me that they're all 15, I'm like, (laughs) anything I have is probably invalid because of how old they are. But the reason I kept asking you about everyone's age is because running a military, making decisions, executing plans takes a lot of planning takes a lot of inhibition sometimes. And uh, the frontal lobe of the brain, this is where I'm getting really neuro, um, frontal lobe of the brain doesn't actually complete development or solidify until age 25. So everyone's skills is kind of garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I'm like, so he runs into that 35-year-old man. Um, Ramba Rald, And I'm like, He's probably the one with the most skill and the one one with most planning and forethought, and he straight up dies. So (laughs) neurologically, is this more the creator hating, like, functioning brains or adults? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we skipped over a couple of episodes where they meet some very old, indeed, generals who are running the war. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're just they're just trash people. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, And they're happy and one might even say eager to sacrifice people with not yet fully developed frontal lobes for the good of the the war effort. That's so unfortunate. (laughs) And then, of course, um, because this couldn't be a straightforward case, um, I took count of about how many potential traumatic brain injuries Amaro may have. (laughs) Um, Oh, and you didn't watch the episode where he blacks out while he's trying to launch the fighter at very high speed. Oh, good grief. Yeah, he's out for a while in that one, actually. Oh, my God. How long is he out? Um, It feels like minutes. Okay. Well, anything over 30, I would have been concerned. I'm still concerned. (laughs) (laughs) worth pointing out and feel free to correct me if any of this oh, is no, wrong but so a lot of us have heard the term shell shock yeah in world war one they thought that was part of what caused ptsd like symptoms mm-hmm. in soldiers they thought it was the impact of the the explosive shells then psychiatry sort of took a different route and they said actually like ptsd is from trauma of war and now it's actually swinging back the other way again and they yeah. think it's a combination so they have a fun field for that, which I kind of tangentially get into. It's called polytrauma, <laughs> where I don't induce multiple traumas, but they're people that have come through and they mean the poly meaning both the physical trauma and the emotional trauma, mm-hmm. because what we have are these awful confounding overlap. So only recently, they've only started service connecting blast exposure because being hit with the blast wave is just as damaging as hitting a hard surface. Mm -hmm. So we have that. And that's wherever you hit and whatever your distance to it, they actually have that um, mapped out on a really nice graph of like how severe the symptoms should be based on your exposure. Um, That'll be the symptoms you demonstrate. So when he was like, Maybe a third of a kilometer away from a nuclear blast. Do you feel like that would have affected him? <laughs> I was like, this boy's got tinnitus. Someone like <laughs> someone do something. Um, this, poor, this poor boy. 
Then the second part of the polytrauma is the actual emotional trauma, which is the PTSD. So because of that, they kind of have two different fields now, but I totally get that. And it's actually a lot of psychoeducation I have to do with people. It's just like shell shy, PTSD, um, warriors, uh, battle fatigue, all of those are the same thing. We conceptualize them different. And the problem is they all have the same symptoms. So all of the overlapping symptom for PTSD and potential severe uh, TBI is always going to be like this depressive symptom overlook, this lack of enjoyment, this avoidance of everything. Um, you know, like when Amara was in bed, covered up, and like, I don't want to deal with anyone. <laughs> uh, this inability to feel pleasure, this inability to connect with people. So, and that's what made it so hard. But if we look at the etiology, we're able to treat it better. Same thing, different pathways, but in the end, someone's still suffering. Etiology meaning the thing that caused it? Yes, that. So there was something else you mentioned earlier, uh, the intergenerational aspect. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Do you mean like with his parents or like, do you mean like with the idiots on the, t- <laughs> the white? White base. White base. On the idiots with the white base. Uh, I meant more with his parents. I hadn't actually realized that there was a an element of his relationship with the white base. The way I like to conceptualize people is um, there's like two models that are really helpful. It's a biopsychosocial model. So I'm model. So I'm looking at things from the inside out. And then what other people like to think about is this ecological model where we're looking at um, the relationships, um, nuclear to your immediate relationships, and then how those trickle down into you. So what I was thinking about with intergenerational on the white base is this this pervading message of how these kids aren't doing anything and it's being perpetuated by them by wanting to not do anything, the older generation. If you grow up just steeped in that message, that's an intergenerational wounding, much like what some people would say is happening now. Mm -hmm. So these are like the episodes where the refugees don't value what the people on the white base are doing and the refugees at one point we didn't show you this but they stage a sit-in because they are like you're not adequately taking care of us we insist that you take us somewhere safe and put us down uh and this is all happening while the white base is actively in a battle oh my god (laughs) yeah (laughs) I, i keep being impressed by how what you're talking about so closely corresponds to scenes you haven't actually seen yet <laughs> that message is just so strong between them all. It's yeah. just like, oh my God. Um, but the intergenerational wounding between parents is just, so what I was looking up for, we started was um, uh, these theorists are talking about types of attachment. So our healthy one is secure attachment, which is, you know, you get comfort from a, a caregiving figure. That that comfort and that protection is going to always be there for you. Yeah, you know, you can count on it. It's fine. Um, I'm just going to say that isn't happening here. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so then we have resistant, which um, is something else. It's just it's an entirely different dynamic where the comfort is there. The caregiving figure is there. But something happened where you don't want it. I was mostly Mm. focusing on insecure, ambivalent and insecure avoidant attachment because what they like to do is break it down even more. Uh, So the insecure ambivalent is this like, if you are in distress, you have no desire to seek new stimuli, but you don't necessarily gain comfort from your caregiving figure, which we know Amaro has none. So I was more torn between that and insecure avoidant where he just doesn't seek soothing at all. 
Uh, so I'm like, one of those might apply to him, but I don't know what it was like over the course of he his seems, life. He seems extremely, at least in the episodes we've seen of him, he seems extremely resistant to any kind of soothing behavior. Like when right. people try to take care of him, he gets very like uncomfortable and he doesn't like that. I think he just more doesn't think he deserves it. Hmm. So a lot of the things that happen with PTSD is that um, you start to view yourself as the monster uh, as you slowly make those connections. Like every time I talk about when he's counting people that he's killing, I'm like, that's a way to de dehumanize him so you're okay with what you're doing. The mining base episode was just a time to be like, oh, this is a larger project, therefore I don't care about who's in there. And I thought that was a really interesting touch where he sees uh, that soldier holding the picture of someone close to him and he gives him water. And the soldier does say something that other soldiers say to one another is just don't. Don't do that. <laughs> Hold the line. Uh, yeah. And it's it's hard because like he didn't grow up in um, soldier training. So he has none of that camaraderie, the secondary uh, family situation. So I, he's just so emotionally bankrupt. It makes me sad. <laughs> I hadn't put together the counting thing before watching this with you, but in a couple of episodes when Nomura is facing a lot of enemies, he does count each one that he kills. Mm. Yeah. So that works two ways. I was like, so it works to dehumanize and also works to like, you know, video games like, oh, look at what I've accomplished. It is countable. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that he's trying very hard to distance himself from the idea of being a killer. And make himself feel good about himself when yeah, he's doing. Yeah. Poor boy. Like, I'm I'm the best at the Gundam. Look how many <laughs> I can kill. That's exactly what he says when he's stuck in the cell. Yeah. And I thought that was fantastic. Um, just the way he said it. You can actually see an identity shift in him in the cell. Because what happens is, with a lot of people that are reassigned um, positions in the military is just like, I've worked so long as a gunner. Then they promoted me. And they kind of feel confused. Because like the only thing I know how to do is this. So it becomes their identity. So when he actually shifts to... I need to kill Rambo Rowell. That's a that's a functional shift to mm. not tie to the Gundam, and it made sense that he went in the tank to go do it because he's like, ah, "You're gonna take okay. away my tools. I'm still gonna fulfill my destiny." And then you told me he died, so Rambo Rowell died. So I'm like, "Okay, so he just fills it in with Char now." <laughs> <laughs> he may have been substituting Rambo Rowell for Char in the first place. Mm. After Char orchestrates Garma's death, Char gets reassigned for a little while. Uh, and that is sort of when Amuro really goes off the rails is when he doesn't have that rival around anymore. Oh, really? Is Do we see any of that? It's not directly connected to Shar. Coincident timing. Yeah. Ah, okay. So like, you know, when Amuro goes to see his mom, uh, that's shortly after Shar has left. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It, like everybody needs to be seeing black and white. It really needs to be. I need to know who's the good and the bad. And like he's he vacillates between that a lot. He also has a kind of like an admiration for Shar in some situations. What's your take on that? <laughs> it makes sense that it would come out that way out of a 15 year old, a uh, 15 year old coming out with this um Semi fanaticism, it sounds like, because they don't know what respect for skill looks like. Mm. 
So probably have to see more of it because I would need to know his behavior doing it. But the fact that it's even happening totally makes sense. What I've seen so far is just like, what are the mentors for Amaro? Oh, non-existent. So I will <laughs> overlay one on someone I know who has skill, but I know they're the bad guy. So I'm going to be conflicted and it's going to be weird. So that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense, especially since Amaro, there aren't any... There aren't any pilots there who are better than Amuro at piloting. That was what was interesting when I saw the simulations for Rambo Rao. Was essentially he's getting a mentor by proxy, even though he's the enemy, and he's playing that out in the in someone technically teaching him how to be better at the cost of your life potentially. But you know, yeah. we all do what we do. Yeah, the creator of, of Gundam has said in interviews that Rambo Rao is supposed to be kind of a father figure for Amuro. In that interaction in the desert where they meet up in the town and Rambaral offers him some food, um, which is also a scene that when we watched it, we thought was very sort of sexually charged. Um, you know, uh, Hamon sort of. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. The scene in the bar. Oh, because I was like thinking like the exchange that he had where he where he revealed him holding a gun. Oh, <laughs> that too. Went, I where they're standing really close together. And Robert Rawls just like reaches. No, he, he, he like, the cut's like really high up. So he's like, uh-huh. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what's happening? What is happening down there? Uh, that whole scene feels extremely sexually charged. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Um, and yet it's also supposed to be like a father figure, mentor figure kind of situation. And then at the end of that episode, when Amuro destroys Ramba's mobile suit and Ramba like swings away on a grappling hook attached to the Gundam's groin. <laughs> oh, that's where I was. I didn't see that. Yep. <laughs> he became his. Um. And that's, that's the episode where Amuro ends the episode in his cell, like punching the wall and saying, I must destroy that man. Well, that's even sadder for what I just said. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to go with, yeah, he was a father figure in the sense that we talk about, like, how in poorly formed father relationships, they're waiting for their son to strike back. So that's why he was, you know, removing Mm. his coat. And it's like, oh, my God, look, you were showing aggression. But if we're going to look at it that way, um, and I'm not Freudian at all. (laughs) 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 She said very sarcastically. I did wonder, because uh, I tend to think of teenagers as being in sort of the prime time of trying to work out how to have romantic relationships <laughs> and playing around with romantic relationships. And uh, Amaro only seems to develop romantic feelings for women who are much older than him. <laughs> well, are they, though? Is anyone over like... <laughs> Well, Matilda is probably, what, in her 20s? Yeah, Matilda's in her mid to late 20s. Haman is probably in her 30s. Well, that's because... Oh, God. I don't know if I work with enough, like, teenagers. I specifically chose not to work with teenagers (laughs) for this type of nonsense. I can't imagine why. They They seem like such wonderful people. They seem so happy and totally know themselves. Um... On top of all the sublimation of emotion that we have overall that comes from trying to assume uh, duties beyond what they have clearly have capability for, we do have these two people trying to figure out if there's a place for emotions. And that's always been something that teenagers have to deal with. 
to get Freudian again. I was like, of course he would like older women because he's like, he never had the time to be grossed out by his own mother. And then, of course, he's like, oh, I'm going to like people the same age as my mother and um, whatever. That's that's my wonderful pop psychology <laughs> bit about that. But I think it's just that he has respect for these women in power. Uh, so he has more admiration, but it's, of course, coming out of a teenage boy wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, that's interesting. He wants to respect someone so badly and it's so sad. (laughs) Yeah. No one's worthy of respect. It's so sad. (laughs) That was something your dad pointed out too. He described like every person over, you know, 30 as a completely failed human being. Yep. I do notice that the women, the older women that Amaro really gravitates to are very, very different from his mother. Mm. Um, they're much more authoritative. I think they read very masculine, mm. um, both Matilda and Haman. And so maybe there's a sense of like, like seeking that admirable older woman, but also really loathing or at least disdaining the sort of woman that his mother is Hmm. um, and consequently the sort of woman that Fra is and then so the the women that he that he finds himself drawn to are they're not well the other thing is they're not anything like his dad either (laughs) probably so different that he finds them appealing (laughs) they are nothing like any of the grown-ups who have failed him right you have yet to fail me. In fact, didn't Matilda save him? Yep. Yeah, yeah. She Several sacrificed times. her life to save him. Something <laughs> that neither of his actual parents would ever do. Um, oh, man. Uh, you did mention, as we were watching, uh, that Amaro would make a terrible patient. He would. (laughs) He would. The other reason I don't like working with teenagers or anyone under the age of 18 is it's really hard to get actual consent from them. Uh, I have experience working with teenagers. Um, I did have one where the whole time she refused to do therapy. So we just did mindful coloring together. And I kind of just snuck in a question every now and then. I got paid to color. (laughs) Not ideal, (laughs) but I was very sad about it. Um, and he seems just um, vocabulary devoid for any emotion he has. Like the snippet before we got distracted was just like, oh, do you hate? Did you hate Frau or something? And he was like, it's not like I don't hate her. And like, like that's so extreme. Yeah. It's like, uh-huh. do you hate her? Do you not hate her? He's like, uh, I don't know the words for the middle. And like, <laughs> that's what I do with all the time for everyone. I have to give them this whole wheel of like, it's colors and it's beautiful. It's the names of emotions. That's why and one of the conventions I went to two years ago when Inside Out came out, we loved it because we're like, here's at least five emotions that like <laughs> you can name, you can throw a dart at. And for children, I hand you like stuffed animals. You can tell me I feel yellow. So, you know, I just that's why he would be terrible. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because he doesn't want to get better. No, he doesn't want to get better. You can see that he's functioning quite well. The problem is, so the context in which he's functioning calls for these situations and we have yet like you said you're like oh look it's gonna be peaceful and i'm like no it's not it's never (laughs) gonna be a peaceful time because what happens is ptsd manifests when you go back home when it doesn't call for these situations and i think that the closest portrayal of that that we saw was when he was uh, eating a can of beans and sleeping on his gun. And I was like, I know so many people that do that. 
in the real world, it doesn't work. But for him in that context, you see him kind of out of the military, but kind of on his own. And then there are so many people that just live like that. So it won't happen. He's always going to be functional to them at the moment. But if God, he ever sits, settles down, it'll be a mess. So the, the worst thing that could happen for him is if the war ended. Yes, actually. <laughs> I'm projecting an entire future of alcoholism, severe alcoholism, if it stops. Um, what I like to talk to people a lot about when I see them is just the difference between passive and active suicidal ideation. So a passive is what we all have, where we just wake up and we're like, I really wish I just didn't have to do today. If I just woke up dead, I'd be fine. Um, we have that all fleeting, but like the active comes with this intent, plan, means, all that other stuff. Um, so when we go into more like more prevalent passive, um, that's where he's running into traffic, where he's like making it someone else's job to come at him or like, oh, no, I was in a situation where I could have died, but I didn't have to do that. So mm -hmm. he's just got more of that. Mm -hmm. But like because he's doing it in a functional way where he where it's acceptable, I, I question the functionality. <laughs> So that scene where Amaro sees his dad again and he catches a glimpse of his dad in a bookstore across the street and he runs out into traffic to try to find his dad again um, after lying to his crewmates and telling them he's just going to go check out the bookstore. Um, and then we get this extended scene of Amaro running after his dad. And every time he starts to get close, the bus that his dad is on pulls away again. The nostalgic music. It is nostalgic music for all the times that your father has left you. <laughs> it's hard. It's so sad he finds that nostalgic. Well, and his dad, I mean, his dad's an engineer. Amaro, when he was uh, safe at home, so to speak, was you know tinkering with electronics constantly. There's clearly a sense of Amaro trying to model himself on his dad. That feeling of like, always trying to catch up, but never being able to. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, thank you. <laughs> but then he actually gets there, right? He gets to where his dad is living, and it's a junkyard. Yeah. It's a mess. There's nothing there for him when he finally catches up to his dad. There's a room of disappointment. <laughs> nothing there for him emotionally either. His father's reaction is, oh, it's you. How's the Gundam? <laughs> <laughs> How is the cold machine? <laughs> How was the machine I built? Yeah, no, that was terrible. Wait, when you know, when you say the machine I built, do you mean the Gundam or the or Amaro? Amaro. <laughs> so I can't help but wonder in that scene because Amaro thinks to himself, oh, dad must be brain damaged from being oxygen deprived when he was pulled out of the side and into space. But how much of that is Amaro needing to justify his father's coldness by saying like, he is physically sick, and that's why. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Not, it's not his fault. In fact, it's this thing that I did to him. I had some hypotheses for both of the, the guilt going both ways. Ooh, please share them. Well, I have had a ton of experience working with TBIs. I have yet to have any experience working with anyone that's gotten oxygen deprivation in space. So I don't know what that <laughs> looks like symptomatically or what that would look like down the way. Also, how much time has passed since the dad has been out there? Well, that's a serious question. How much time has passed? Um, something on the order of a month. 
Has it two really months? only been? That's it's, it? I would think a couple of not, months. Not no? more than two months. Dear I don't think. God, I was we hoping. Could, I can actually check this if it's important. Oh no, I was just hoping at least a year. Has he at least no. gone to age sixteen? Oh. oh lordy! All right. Anyway, so I had like two hypotheses like going on both ends. So I'm like, from the father's end, I've seen that kind of emotional distance when your son, if your son is responsible for an example, shooting you in the mouth, you really don't want to believe that your son is capable of that you really don't want to so you wrestle with this kind of like who to blame uh so if he's wrestling with it with also oxygen sickness um (laughs) we're going on like a you know about like 60 percent brain functionality and trying to work with that so i thought that a lot of that could be on the father's side of like I don't know how to respond to my son, but I don't want to blame him for what happened to me because that would mean that I would have to come to terms with that reality. So instead, I will try and help him on his way with this thing that I found and we have yet to figure out if if maybe it was useful. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) From that standpoint, that would be fascinating if he had that kind of nuance with him. I have really good news for you, Char. Yeah? Amro has had a birthday. (gasps) He had a birthday about a month ago. Oh, my goodness. So he is, he finally missed diagnostic criteria for everything. <laughs> so silly. Uh, no, so it is hard. I mean, part of that scene was mourning the loss of his father. It's just like all children and all people have this ideal father and then like the reality. So if he's been going on something to survive, something to not blame himself for, of course, he probably has his fantasies like dad's probably out somewhere on side seven or side something doing whatever he wants um and then to come to grips with that reality and see that like i don't know if he's made the connection that that he's done that or something just to see that his father's gone nuts is just like to say goodbye to any hope of or a nuclear family yeah did you notice that when amaro is having this realization about how terrible his dad actually is the part that his dad gives him is supposed to go in the Gundam's memory circuits. I wonder if that's symbolic. Well, the creator, Tomino, he is of a generation. He was born early enough that he was about four when World War II ended. His father was a military engineer, and he never talks about his mom. Wow, I would have loved to have that before I watched all this. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to bias you. Oh, Lordy. Um, wow, he must hate emotions. <laughs> <laughs> I think he likes emotions to be quiet and far away. Put in a box deep down in my tummy. <laughs> <laughs> far away from my actual heart where I can feel them. Um, no, that's... Oh, my. <laughs> I'm going to have to do more writing. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that the message was more of like, remember the awful things we experienced or um, what do you think were his hopes that people took away from this entire series? He's very Delphic. He like he gives inconsistent answers all the time. And the only thing he consistently says is figure it out for yourself. So he's not very helpful about that. So he's relinquished responsibility for flavoring your views. Basically, yeah. Well, Um, that's very reminiscent of not wanting to listen to your mother. (laughs) (laughs) I also wonder sometimes if it's not about found family and 
building those relationships outside of your biological family, if your biological family proves a disappointment. Although, obviously, a lot of Amaro's relationships, even on the white base with his fellow crew members, are unhealthy. <laughs> and none of them are... I mean, they're all more or less his peers, right? They're mm-hmm. not... Well, I mean, Bright's 19. Might have had a birthday. Bright might be 20 by now, which makes Bright ship dad. And there's a rotating cast of ship mom. Although that... Under, uh, under different circumstances. It's named pretty explicitly as Mirai yeah. in this yeah, episode. Yeah, I was like, doesn't it like, um, for the sake of like family systems theory, they've already done that. We're like, <laughs> <laughs> we're holding hands. We are parents. You are our children. Yep. This right. is our house. It has guns. <laughs> it's true. Fra initially, because she's doing the laundry and she's making the food and she's taking care of the little orphans, Fra has a very domestic motherly kind of attitude. But as we've gotten to know her more, she's actually become more of a child character wise yeah and so maybe she's falling into more of like a you know a sisterly role rather than a motherly role there's actually a book about the role of the eldest daughter in most families is just to pick up um on the smaller details that the mom has less time for and i feel like that's where she's going Mm. with mirai being more of the actual mother if mom is piloting the ship, then... Then I got to clean the ship. <laughs> because that's actually a role that comes up a lot where like the oldest daughter, even if they're like second oldest or second oldest past a, a brother, will normally have a large part in parenting the children of the rest of the family. And I feel like she likes if someone gets stuck doing the dirty work and not ever having a childhood. So I think that might be what's happening for her, for Fra. Is there an equivalent for the oldest boy? No. Huh. <laughs> no, they kick you out. No I'm kidding. No, there just isn't. There just isn't, actually. How interesting. After we finished recording, Shar asked me to clarify that when she said that the older sibling role doesn't occur for boys, she meant that it doesn't occur for boys who have a father figure who is meeting basic needs. I think the statistic is something around like 98% of us experience a trauma, but a significantly smaller percentage experience PTSD. So post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, So what I'm interested in for most people, as I look at their strengths, because I know we talk a lot about, about like he has a sad family and he's in battle all the time. But the good thing about being so young is that he's demonstrating something called resilience. And that's, you know, uh, colloquially it means something. It means like, you know, bounce back. But also psychologically it means something that he's able to overcome all this and still do what he's supposed to do. And I'm wondering... Um, I'm wondering how long that'll last. I'm wondering what the resources are for that. The reason I keep asking about whether Naughty has computers in his room is because that seems to be the only coping he's had like throughout the time before he joined the military. So I was like, we always grow out of our habits. So like when we're stressed, we go to the ones that are familiar. Okay. So that's really interesting for reasons I can't say yet because (laughs) of spoilers. Okay. (laughs) Does he make another robot? Does he make another tennis ball? (laughs) The tennis ball is Haro. He's still a tennis ball to me. So if he he ever drops any of those activities for like longer than we saw him uh, where he was curled up in bed, that would be when I start to worry about the lasting effects. Um, and relationship wise, I do not expect this boy to be able to make any attachments. He's a bit, he's clearly able to feel positive feelings. He said positive things about Ms. Matilda and Ms. Haman. So 
the moment those go away, that would be when I'm worried. But the fact that he's still exhibiting them, like that's a strength. Do not take mm-hmm. it away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so there's some hope for Amaro. Good. Unless I'm very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know, but I can't say. <laughs> Good to know. Well, thank you for having me here. Our pleasure. And it was great. I can't wait to have you back. Yay! Next time on episode 1.28, Sparks Fly. A serious man. Shar's secret weapon. A swan in the rain. Sympathy for the Hayato. Flashbacks and callbacks. A device to make the Gundam stronger. Stuck in a rut. Slayer Law, defender of men? Tem takes all the credit. An evil laugh and lots of crying. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Slager Law is a perfect role model for all the young, impressionable teens on the white base. That's why he was assigned there by Federation Command on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. A wrong Gundam opinion this week was submitted independently by two of our patrons. So thank you to Charlie W. and Zach S. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. I do is speak in acronyms, so I'm like <laughs> O-E-F-O-I-F uh, um, Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Infinite Justice <laughs> <laughs>tell Anne like if you notice my voice change that's me doing therapy voice you should just tell me because (laughs) I hate when I do that so tests I'd love to give Mama Ro. I want him to fill out a fill out a personality test. I'd like to sit with him in a room for a little while, just get a good read on him. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'd know.
Shar, the clinical psycho, the clinicker, the clinicker, the clinicker, Shar, the clinicker. I want that. I want the the Conscon fleet attacking music to be my ringtone. The scary pianos. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why do you always want scary to be your ringtone? Because the phone is terrifying. So wouldn't you want to make it a little less terrifying? No, that's that's just lies. That truck is still there. Yep. Yeah.